Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the Calvinist use and misuse of language. I often accuse them of just not understanding how language functions and operates. As evident in this little delicious little tidbit, this was on some sort of Calvinist page, and I posted this quote by John Calvin describing his belief in no mere permission. Calvinists will say, well, that was just his permissive will. He just permitted that to happen. And no, in Calvinism, John Calvin says no mere permission. And here's, I'm not going to read the whole quote. I'll just read the last sentence. That men do nothing save at the secret instigation of God and do not discuss and deliberate on anything but what he has previously decreed with himself and brings to pass by his secret direction is proved by numberless clear passages of scripture. And we got this young fellow, I don't know if he's young, young fellow Brock. And Brock uh, says, Calvin often says things like this, like he's quoting my original post. And he says, well, it's important to remember, it's not Calvin saying this. It's Calvin's reflection on the Bible saying this. And he uses exclamation point like, oh, no, I did not know this. If only I would have read those same passages, I would have walked away with the same ideas of Calvin. And he goes on. If you got a problem with the theology here, remember, it is the scriptures themselves that are making the claim you want to contend with. And he quotes Proverbs 21.1, And the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Oh no, bestill my heart. Oh, that proved Calvin's quote directly. And so I respond, you know, I, I do not think Calvinists understand language. They don't understand how it is used, how it operates, how it functions. They just can't read. You're dealing with illiterate people. And it's a willful, willful ignorance. It's a willful illiteracy. They'll read normal texts like a normal human being, but then they turn to their Bible and they're in such a isolated theological bubble that they, they lose all perspective. They, they lose all reading comprehension ability. And so I, I point this out. I said, hey, that's not how language works. And he responds... And yet there it is, the scripture confronting us with biblical truth. <laughs> it's like that I respond to him, I'm claiming you can't read. You just don't understand how language functions. And so your claim is without merit. And he's, he's getting kind of mad. You know, I'm not, I'm not actually addressing his point. I'm just saying you just can't read. That's, this, that's what's going on in your text. Help me understand what this verse means then. And then he, he calls the admins, you know, he's... I, this is why I think he's like a little kid because he runs the admins to complain. I don't know. Admins, I really hate complaining about this, but I want to engage with folks who disagree, but I don't want to engage with folks who just want to be disagreeable. What? I do, did I ever offer to engage with you? Did I Did I say I wanted to? That's one thing. These guys tend to be very entitled to. There's a very triggered Calvinist on one of the Jesse Morell videos on one of these Facebook pages who thought that Jesse Morell owed it to the Calvinist he was engaging with to try to honestly contend and convert the individual. That was never Jesse Merle's stated goal. Jesse Merle's stated goal in the video was, I'm not here to debate with you. I'm here to preach to these people. And uh, so he was shutting down the conversation. That's his prerogative. I, I never engaged you, Mr. Brock. I never asked to interact with you. So I said, admins, I could prove my claim. And how am I going to prove my claim? You know, one way to do that is to show them that they seriously can't read. And showing parallel statements in the Bible about other things other than God with the same phrases and language, that's one way to do it. Showing them the same things in outside literature with equivalent phrases and, and seeing how they interpret those verses, that's another way. They don't want to play that game because then they have to put on their reading comprehension skill hat 
And then they have to actually acknowledge that the verse that they're using as their evidence doesn't definitively argue the point that they want to make. And there's legitimate alternative readings, which, which is largely guided by context. That's so funny. So what do I do? I turn to the new Malish because the new Malish is great in that it's his massive narrative that describes the gods, their formation, what they do, their actions, their motivations, their interactions. And then, and then it ends with all these negative theology phrases, statements that are ascribe uh, like total, uh, total power to Marduk and total knowledge and, and things like that which you, you have to understand that the narrative takes precedence. And so you have to read these statements. You can't just pull them out of context and then pretend like there's an absolute meaning to those words and then, then reread it onto the text before, before the absolute statements and read them back into the narrative and undermine the narrative. No, actually, we go the other way around. The narrative guides these general statements, and these general statements do just serve as general statements. So Anuma Elish, again, a quick overview, is uh, Marduk is a created god, and he has to rise up, and he has to go defeat Enlil, which is some sort of a goddess deity who's fighting against the gods because they killed her husband, and you know, there's, there's a divine struggle. And guess what? Marduk prevails. He takes the reins of authority. And then there's a list of praises, power statements that are attributed to Marduk. One of them is this. This is Marduk speaking. Let my word instead of you determine the fates. Well, you know, whichever God was uh, supreme, their word determined the fates. It, you know, it's, that, does that mean everything is fated for all eternity? No. Although you might take that language, you might take that out of context and claim that that's what that little phrase means. No, it's actually uh, limited by context. But what it means is whoever's in power, their will is the one that everyone listens to. They're, they're like the king, and then everyone follows them. Unalterable shall be what I may bring into being. And imagine if that phrase was used against Yahweh, used for Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh has unalterable what he shall bring into being. Is, is it being used in this absolute sense where it's nothing can override it no matter what? Or is it just a general phrase that, that Marduk's power is currently uncontested? Not that it can't ever be contested in the future. You know, remember, the narrative takes precedence. Marduk is a created god. Marduk could have lost. There is an easy, easy chance for him to lose against Enlil in this divine struggle. These are not absolute concepts. They should not be read as hard and fast metaphysics says, neither recall nor change shall be the command of my lips. Look at this absolute statement, these absolute phrases. What's this mean? Negative theology that Marduk can never be undone no matter what, and, and uh, everything is medically, metaphysically set in stone. It's not functioning like that at all. Instead, this is just a general power claim stating that no one can oppose him and no one's going to be undermining him. Not that it can't happen, but it's just, it's just a general statement of power. You know, here's just just watch how this language works. The language, although if you take it out of its context and you look at it on its own, you might think your theology onto that. You might think that these are absolute statements that Marduk is this deity that meticulously controls all things. Every every microbe that ever occurs and every grain of salt on every you know in every salt mine that he controls the falling, the vectors, everything like that. That's not what this is talking about. That's not how this is functioning. Instead, this is a general sovereignty claim. This is just about 
directing and guiding and willing things to happen and other creatures falling in line to make sure that his decrees do happen. You know, here's some more statements about him. Truly, he is supreme in the assembly of the gods. No one among the gods is his equal. You have phrases like that about Yahweh, the Bible. What does the Calvinists do? They ignore context. They turn to those claims and they say, see, my negative theology, God is the greatest being imaginable, like that Calvinist of mine who wanted me to go to Isaiah 40 to talk about his idea of God being the greatest being imaginable, his his metaphysics he wanted to read into these statements. Again, statements like this do not stand alone from context. Context determines the meaning of these, these chance phrases rather than the chance phrases determining the meaning of all the narratives that ever happened. You know, this is how normal people read. No one's going to read the Numa Elish and then think that this is the Calvi God, the Calvinist God, Marduk, controlling all things, even though there's statements that the Calvinists would really like to find in the Bible as attributed to Yahweh. It's just not what's happening. And a normal, competent reader could tell you that. A normal, competent reader could read the text and understand that these statements, although they look absolute, although you might go through the grammar, this is, this is the funny thing, you might go through the grammar, Word by word, you could look at the verbs, you could you could look at what those verbs modify, and you could say, see, these verbs are absolute. There's no leeway. It must mean my theology. That's not how language works. It just isn't. And so de- attributing hard and defined meanings to vague standalone phrases is an incorrect way of doing language translation, doing language interpretation. It just doesn't work. And so when this guy, this Brock, he takes this one proverb, and this is a proverb, so in context, it's a standalone phrase. It's a standalone verse that doesn't have any context, and he takes this standalone verse. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. What he takes this is Calvin's statement that men do nothing save at the secret instigation of God and do not discuss and deliberate on anything but what he has previously decreed with himself and brings to pass by a secret direction is proved by numberless clear passages of the scripture. So he takes this statement about God guiding the king's hearts. Is this a generality? Is this idiom? Is this in general? Is this, can this change? Can God not do that if God wanted to? Is what, what kind of statement is happening here? Is this a metaphysical absolute, which Brock wants to take it as some sort of metaphysical absolute that not only applies to kings, but applies to everyone who's ever existed, no matter where. Language just doesn't work like that. Maybe, maybe that's the meaning, but you don't get it out of this one standalone phrase in the context of Proverbs. And what are Proverbs? They're standalone little sayings to try to teach general truths. And some Proverbs even contradict each other. This is how Proverbs work and function. They're they're not hard and fast absolutes. I, I don't think I don't think uh, our friend Brock here would want to take all Proverbs as hard and fast absolutes. He's going to have a lot of problems if he does so. But anyways, anyways, so let's let's get to Chris Date, and he wants to talk about uh, Genesis 50, and he really insists that the grammar of Genesis 50 means his theology. So let's take it away. So tell us about uh, this next uh, passage from Genesis. It's the classic one. It's the story of Joseph, um, and uh, in a way, telling the whole story would take too long but uh there is that that classic verse in genesis 50 
uh, verse 20, where Joseph says, I'm quoting from the New International Version, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, which has obviously been referred to many times by those who would say that there's a great example of God using, you know, all kinds of good and bad things in Joseph's life to to um, create a, a greater, a wonderful outcome, a good purpose, ultimately, in all things. Um, so so this, of, of course, um, you know, do you want to just lay out exactly how you think that does um, correspond to your particular view of, of God's divine sovereignty, Chris? Yeah, so what Joseph is talking about here, as far as I can tell anyway, is when his brothers had years earlier um, uh, tried to sell him into slavery. And what jo- what Joseph says here is that both his brothers and God uh, were, were ultimately causal behind that sin. They were ultimately... Uh, they were causal behind that sin. Let's let's take a look. Uh, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Is this about causalness? Is it? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's how it's reading. I think he's reading that into the verb. Uh, you're making that up. Um, responsible for determining to uh, for, for that sin to take place, and the way that he does that is he makes both Joseph's he makes his brothers and God the the grammatical subject of the same verb, and he makes that their intended harm the the selling of him into slavery the direct object of that verb. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now let me just unpack this a little bit grammatically. So we've got two subjects. Uh, first is Joseph's brothers, and then it's God. We've got the same verb, hashav, which here means meant, uh, something like that. Um, At least that's how it's translated in the translation I've used. And the direct object of the first use of the verb is ra'ah, which means evil or injury or wrong. It's, It's the word translated evil in this passage. So imagine someone's doing this with those Enuma Elish verses. They're like, let's look at the structure. Here's the verb. Uh, here's the subject. Uh, here's the direct object. What's going on here? And, uh, you know, this is this is uh, Marduk, who keeps a hold on their ways and determines their courses. So who's doing the determining? Oh, it's Marduk. Uh, but what, what it fails to note is the way language works and functions. These determinations, these... These decrees that are unchanging, they're unalterable uh, sayings, these unalterable fates that are being said are in fact alterable. These these things don't have, they're not by necessity, even though the language would suggest it. Guess what? The narrative takes precedence. And so what's going on in the narrative? Is God ever thwarted in the narrative? The whole narrative of Genesis, I love Genesis, uh, it's it just there's so much good stuff, so many good interactions between God and mankind to really get a good sense on the nature and character of God, which all has to be sidestepped and ignored. And we turn to Genesis 50, they take one little phrase, they pull it out of context, and they just say, this definitely means my theology. But go back and let's, let's read it and see, even we've already established that even if this says that God decreed all these events uh, for good. Let's say that used that language as well. Yeah, the language just doesn't function where that definitely means Chris dates theology and that Leighton Flowers is wrong, even using stronger language than what's actually in this verse. In this verse, it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That doesn't read to me that God's determining and causing all things. It sounds like God's subverting them, that God is using the same events to get his plans accomplished, that he is overriding them and he's he's uh, beating them in some sort of master move. You know, they're trying to do something with their actions and God 
overtook it, uh, subverted it, and used it for his own intentions. That's what it reads like to me. And when this uh, is when this word is the direct object of this verb, it means to devise or to plan. So you've got, for example, Psalm 35, 4, in which God is implored to let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. And God says in Jeremiah 18, 8, that if a nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. <laughs> the, this, the irony of him using that proof text is, is just lost on him. So he literally quotes a passage in which God does not get his way. God intends something and that thing does not materialize. This is God thinking that he's going to do something. This is God devising something. This is God planning something. It's not about like God doing something. Uh, not not in not in the verses that he quotes as evidence for this verse. His own evidence is against him. So it's about plans. It's about intents. It's about uh, divinations or devising, devising different ways to get things done. That's what this this word is. And so you, you devised evil against me, but God devised it for good. I yeah, that makes sense for me. That 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 doesn't that doesn't mean Calvinism is true. And Arminianism, open theism is false. That just means God is capable of doing things. When you're dealing with Calvinists, they don't think God is capable of anything. They 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 assume that God must have absolute power over every frog hop, over every every uh, you know little minutia, every little leaf falling and the vector of that leaf. God must control all things, or else He can't do anything. Uh, and so, Layton Flowers in this interview has to start arguing. God can do some things. You know, that that's a contentious thing in Calvinism. They think God is absolutely incapable, that he's weak and he's pathetic, unless unless God strictly conforms to their idea of what God must be to be God. Oh, it's funny. So Chris Day, he's focusing on grammar, syntax. Uh, he just doesn't understand how language works. And that, that's my criticism here. You're dealing with people who don't understand the use and function of language. Uh, so, and, and this direct object, um, uh, the direct object of the second use of the verb is a suffix, a, a Hebrew pronominal suffix, meaning it, which is a reference back to the evil that was intended by Joseph's brothers. So what Joseph is saying here is that the very same evil intended by his brothers when they sold him into slavery is the very same evil that was intended by God. The only difference, Joseph says, is that God meant that evil for good. That is, his purposes in bringing that evil about through the agency of Joseph's brothers was good, unlike the purposes for which Joseph's brothers did it. Uh, now, I don't think that believers in libertarian free will like Leighton can explain this text. without. <laughs> what he means by that is uh, I don't accept their explanations because uh, he doesn't understand their explanations. Surely he's heard it plenty of times before. They can explain it. He's just not listening. Out fail every single attempt I've seen, including my opponents in my book, uh, fails to take account of the way the grammar is structured here by Joseph. The fact that God and Joseph's brothers are both the subject of the same verb and the same direct object. So that's what I'd be interested to hear uh, how Leighton understands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God could mean the same thing that other people mean for evil. He can mean it for good. That's that's not a problem to me. So someone at work tries to sabotage you, you get a heads up, and you could lay a trap for them. They mean evil, and you mean good. You could get a good result out of it. 
it, it's just it's just normal how we talk that we could say this phrase and not it's not a denial of uh, libertarian free will. In fact, I don't think it has anything to do with free will or predestination and determination. It's just about this is how God used these events. This that's what's going on here. And again, and again, as as we saw in the Enuma Elish, even hard and fast statements that are pretty undeniable at face value, they're controlled by context. They're controlled by the narrative. They they don't have to mean no matter what that grammar says, no matter which verbs modify, which uh, direct objects and, you know, wh which nouns are there and, and uh, what prepositional phrases there are. And that doesn't mean definitively your theology. What you really need, what you really need is a systematic theology that explains a concept and then goes into detail about that concept, uh, further expounding on it so that you don't have confusion. And again, you're not going to find that in the Bible. That's why he has to turn to these vague phrases, they, these phrases that, that don't have supporting context that prove his theology over alternatives. And he says he's never heard a counterargument mm. against this text. Yeah, Leighton, how, how do you deal with this one then? Well, sure. I, I'd back up a little bit and look at the context of the text because the original intent of the, the brothers was not to sell the brother into slavery. If you look through the narrative, their original intent was murderous. They wanted to kill him because of pride. They were jealous. Well, where does pride originate? Where does that come from? First John 2.16 says, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So Here's Leighton Flowers systematizing. I think it's invalid to take an Old Testament narrative and then recreate that story world in reference to New Testament texts. I think that's an invalid way to do theology. Say, hey, I got this unrelated verse over here. And that, that's kind of a guiding principle for this text here. I don't think that's how we do theology. Leighton Flowers does, and uh, I think Chris Date does. So it might be a useful argument towards him and those types of people who think that's a valid way to do theology. One thing we do notice from the New Testament is we do have a New Testament commentator on this, and that's Stephen in Acts. And he says that, God rescued, rescued Joseph out of the hands of his brothers. So uh, Stephen reads this as a rescuing, not this is God's determined plan and purpose from all eternity, meticulously controlling all things. Nothing like that. There's nothing like that in these verses. There's nothing to suggest a meticulous control of all things. Chris Dates just desperate for proof text. And uh, he's a funny guy. If you... If you watch him interact with people on Facebook, he's he's so insulated in his Calvinist thinking that he, he legitimately thinks that these proof texts that don't have anything to do with his theology, they're proof positive his theology. He's he's looking for nuggets that he could he could reinterpret in light of his systematic rather than looking for evidence that proves his systematic. And he clings on to these nuggets that he reinterprets in light of his systematic. And he wrote, wrote a whole book. I haven't read his book yet, but I, I need to get his new book. I don't even know if it's out yet. But yeah, he's talking about, oh, I went through the whole Old Testament and I grabbed out all these little stories like this. And these are nuggets that he's reinterpreting in light of his systematic. And now he's all... He thinks he's being profound by exclaiming that they're proof positive of his systematic, uh, but he's got his correlation and causation wrong. Whatever we conclude here, we cannot go against what Scripture teaches us and conclude that some eternal divine decree is the cause or the origin of these brothers' pride. We have to come to a better conclusion than, than to impugn, I think, again, unintentionally, I think Chris's view impugns the character of God in that way. 
Yeah, Chris Date. I mean, every time they say Chris, I'm like, oh, yeah, huh, yeah, huh. But anyways, uh, so Leighton Flowers is saying, hey, we got to read this a little bit differently based on my systematic. And, you know, there there are other valid readings. There's nothing in context, and we, we have the context right here, that suggests meticulous control of all events. And Chris Date, his argument earlier in the program is that some things are very specific such that God has to control all these little details. And he, he goes way out there. He, he goes way out uh, in left field talking about what specific things God needs to control to make certain things happen. And it's just, it's not reasonable. And uh, he, he, gets, he gets off on some sort of crazy tangents as if like God has to make sure that certain people raise their daughter right to get them in this certain situation at a certain time, even though the prophecy is not made until that woman's an adult. And, and if she turned out bad, there probably wouldn't have even been a prophecy about her at that point. And, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't think through his theology before he claims his theology. And he just, he just assumes that the theology has to work his certain way. It doesn't seem like he's given opposing sides a fair shake or he thought that thought it out. And so what we would say, I'll give an analogy. For example, uh, police officers create a sting operation where they know of notorious drug dealers in the area. They know their intention. They know that they're evil. And they use, they don't cause, but they use the evil intention of criminals in order to bring about the selling of drugs at a particular time on Thursday at two o'clock in the warehouse so as to catch all the drug dealers in one place in the sting operation. So the police officers knit that selling of drugs and evil crime for a good how about a biblical example paul he's he wants to get to rome and so he appeals to caesar and so he uses an evil thing uh, being uh, tried in court by the romans for for non-crimes really he uses an evil thing for his own advantages you know and that that seems comparable here you could just use people and uh, to get your intended consequences to materialize so the thing about calvinism is why does god have to do this if he's meticulously controlling all things can't he just make it happen without this mechanism and why does it point it out as a special time in which god does intervene to make things happen you know that that you don't find texts where god is controlling all things that's ever happened meticulously nothing like that good reason, while the criminals meant it for a bad reason. So the same crime, the same act is being meant by both the police officers and the criminals. One is being meant for an evil purpose, for selfish gain. The other is being meant for a good purpose. And in the same way, in this scenario, um, obviously God meant what the brothers did for a good purpose, for redemption. So God's not redeeming his own determinations here. He's redeeming the brothers' bad determinations. He's bringing a good from the bad. He's not causing the bad so as to just redeem his own determination. Chris, interesting analogy there as well with the uh, the same crime being meant for different purposes and, and, and so on. Um, what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, my, my opponent in my, in my book uh, offered a similar analogy, and it fails for the same reasons that I think Leighton does, which is that it it does one of uh, at least one of two things. Either it changes um, the verb that is being used when God is the subject, or it's changing the meaning of the verb. Uh, he, so Leighton used a couple of different phrases. First, he said that uh, God doesn't intend the evil act. He uses the intention of the evil act that the criminals had. So he, he doesn't say he intended it. He said... But we've already established that the verb means to plan or to think. You know, that's that's what's happening in Jeremiah. God thinks one thing is going to happen, and then it doesn't happen because 
God changes based on current circumstances. This is your own proof text. This is your own uh, example of how this word is used elsewhere in the Bible, Chris Day. As God used what was intended by the criminals, so he's changing the verb there. But then he says, well, actually, he meant it in the sense that he allowed it to happen. But that changes what the verb means for, for, uh, from what it means throughout the Old Testament when um, this verb is, uh, when, when the direct object of the verb is ra'ah, meaning evil, injury, or wrong. Uh, in my book, I list something like a half dozen or more passages all throughout the Old Testament, including the two I, I read when I introduced this passage, where um, when the verb takes this direct object, it means to devise, to plan. So we have to account, regardless of all the philosophical speculations that I think that Leighton, um, uh, understandably, but I think wrongly, tries to read into this passage, what we have here is a case where Joseph's brothers intended harm and God intended that harm. We can't, we can't change what that verb means just because it doesn't fit our philosophical conclusions or our priori conclusions that we're reading into this text. And we can't allow ourselves to say that God does something other than the same, than the in, intending, the, the devising, the planning that this verb communicates. Okay, so he thinks this is a causative verb, that this is about who causes what harm. And he didn't actually prove that case. He didn't actually bring us anywhere to say, say that that's actually what's going on here. Instead, he brings us to things where God plans or God intends. And so just even looking at the English structure of this, which I think he agrees is a fairly accurate translation, that the, the brothers mean the evil, and evil in the Old Testament, don't confuse that with sin. Just uh, equate that with calamity. Or this, this, this not good thing, the brothers, they meant the not good thing against you, uh, but God purposed it for good. God planned it for good. You meant calamity against me. God purposed it for good. You purposed evil against me. God purposed it for good. It, it, it doesn't invalidate anything in libertarian free will. It doesn't It doesn't prove that Chris Date's idea of the Bible is correct at all. That God meticulously plans and determines all things to ever come to pass is just not proved by this verse at all. There, there's nothing in there. He's really reaching. He really wants a proof text. And that's what happens when they turn to Genesis 50-20. They're desperate for proof text for their beliefs. And so they assume that this one phrase... Uh, it means their theology, and not only that, but you can extrapolate from that on all actions of all people everywhere and always. That's just not how language works and functions. You don't have any of that in the context. It's not a legitimate reading of this verse. Not, not that grand interpretation. Yeah, so if he wants to claim that God is the direct cause of that evil, that God directly made all the evil things happen to Joseph, all the bad things, anything that we would consider sin, all of that is caused by God. Again, that still doesn't prove his position that God causes all things everywhere. God controls all things everywhere. It just means that one thing, you know, that, that's, that's the limitation of what this verse is doing. But through the Joseph narrative, we learn that God has a special relationship with Joseph. And, and just even generalizing that just diminishes God's relationship with Joseph, saying every single person alive has that relationship where God is guiding that meticulously, the events in their life, to some sort of end. I, it's 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 an invalid way to to read the text because it minimalizes Joseph as a special character in the biblical text. Not everyone has God's relationship that God had with Joseph. Not everyone has the relationship King David had with God. There, there's it's 
we, we just, we can't appropriate these verses and apply them to ourselves in the same way. These people are special stars of the Bible for, for particular purposes. And God's not always nice to the people he has relationships with. Ezekiel, Ezekiel basically accuses God of rape because God puts him through some pretty horrendous things. And that sometimes God does those types of things. But again, doesn't mean Calvinism, doesn't mean God controls all things to ever happen. None of that. You just don't get it from these verses. And so back to our, our starting point, back to our little Brock friend who thinks that God guiding King's hearts means that uh, God controls everyone by his secret will to his secret destinations, guiding all people everywhere, always in all contexts. That's just a really bad way to read the text. It's it's not supported by the context. We We have to find narratives or we have to find descriptive details that clarify on short phrases in order to broaden the scope, so to say, of the verses, to to apply them more generally, more absolutely. We have to find actual real evidence rather than short phrases pulled out of context. Anyways, we've gone long enough, so uh, if you like the podcast, uh, hit like, leave a comment, start a thread on God is Open. Thank you for listening. <laughs>